Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, and this week is going to be a really interesting one. Uh, I think I've been wanting to do this for quite some time. Um, this week we have on, we have uh, Reverend Hans Fien. I'm trying to, Feeny. I am oh, trying you, to, I messed up at the, <laughs> you, you corrected got it right the first name, time and then you, yeah. And then yeah, I forgot how I was going to say your last name. How, Hans Feeney, um, he is a Lutheran reverend. He's a Lutheran pastor. Um, and he's also the creator creator of Lutheran satire, which has a pretty big YouTube following. So lots of people laughing at your theological satire um, over at YouTube. Um, he's also a contributor to The Federalist. Uh, we've known each other at least virtually for, for quite some time. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to have him on to talk about a whole slew of sort of um, cultural, national and theological issues um, going back and forth. Obviously, most of you who've been listening to this for quite some time know that I'm an atheist. Um, so uh, now we have atheist versus pastor uh, on a lot of these questions, but actually I think we agree a lot more than we disagree about a lot of these questions. So that's, I think, part of what makes it interesting here. Um, but but welcome to High Noon. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so we're gonna start off, I think, pretty heavy. I wanted to ask you about something um, that seems to run through a lot of the cultural conversations that we have today. And that's this this sense of the quote-unquote authentic self. Um, I think that there's a core of the modern ethos that we mostly live under. It's that there there is some kind of authentic self that just needs to be freed, liberated, discovered, right? Um, that, that uh, you know, any kind of, of constriction of that authentic self is necessarily a bad thing, right? Um, and seen as a, a kind of very um, intrusive imposition onto the human person in some fundamental rights-based way. Um, I think I'm not wrong in saying that you disagree with this overall concept, but how do you think that has fit in to a lot of the way we think about various culture war topics or um, various political topics, and then also just how we we think of ourselves as human, you know, as the human person. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times people have a tendency uh, when it comes to sort of cultural changes to view the world in terms of uh, not questioning principles or presuppositions, uh, but rather to draw lines between what they view as acceptable and not acceptable, just based on kind of the comfort of the moment. Um, so you'll see, you see this a lot in, you know, with the transgender stuff that's going around today, where there are obviously a lot of people that are quite uncomfortable with the direction it's gone, especially uh, when, when aimed at children. But you don't find a lot of people kind of questioning the underlying assumption of uh, who you feel in your being is your authentic self is what you should orient your entire life around. And um, so, you know, as a, as a Christian, one of my uh, sort of presuppositions for looking at the world is saying, well, I'm not my own person. I was created by God, uh, and he has lordship over both my body and soul as well as my mind, uh, which means that the way I orient myself in life is not really in terms of uh, pursuing my passions and then kind of trying to sort of hone them or filter them in a slightly different direction if if, it, if I'm wanting to do something that's uh, not in accord with the scriptures, but rather uh, that I would view the world vocationally rather than in a kind of self-deterministic fashion so that I look at uh, wh where has God placed me in life, who has he given me to take care of, to uh, protect and provide for, and then I orient my life towards that as opposed to uh, the idea that you just go off in your own direction and then you trust that if you ever go out, go too far off course, 
that uh, that you'll kind of correct yourself with your own ethical presuppositions about the world. And so I, I think this is kind of the challenge is that is that when people have this sort of view, of, it's kind of like the way if you listen to people, uh, the weird things people will say about jobs, you know, so those they have people have this line that they say all the time, even though everyone on the universe knows it's not true, which is, uh, if you get a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Uh, which is, you know, I love being a parent. There's, I, there's nothing I've ever done in my life that I love more than being a father to my sons. But, 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 it, but it's a lot of work. I love being a pastor far more than I would love the vast majority of their jobs in the world. But, it, but it's incredibly hard work a lot of times in particular because it's high stakes stuff. Um, and also people might not be good at things that they love doing. And that, and it's just this kind of weird view of the world that, uh, if anything feels like labor or service, that it's not authentic to who you truly are. Then of course, there's the deeper question of, well, who said your authentic self is good? Who, who, who said that, that the thing that you want to be is the thing that you should be. You have to kind of show your math on that. And I think it's a, you know, it's a principle that people would recognize, like there's at some point we say, oh, if that's your authentic self, don't be that way, right? So if you're authentically you know, a- attracted to children, don't be that way, don't pursue those desires. But yet we can't kind of take several steps back and say, maybe the way we should orient society and it is not towards uh, everyone pursuing their own vision of themselves, but towards an actual, somewhat concrete of a common good, and then saying, in what way can I actually contribute to that? So yeah, I think it's a it's a weird way that our culture has structured itself, where on the one hand, uh, no one universally accepts the idea that you should always pursue your passions and your desires. Everyone will always agree there's kind of a line where you should say, okay, that's that's too far. Uh, but no one, very few people are really questioning the kind of underlying assumption that the human existence is rooted around identifying in your soul who you are and then somehow pursuing that in whatever way you see fit. Um, do, you, do you find that you get pushback from members of your congregation or, I mean, just obviously the world at large, but I'm curious how far, because this really seems like, as you said, it's a background assumption of modernity. Mm-hmm. It's it's something that people pick up without necessarily believing that they're, um, you know, actually sort of committing to an axiom in the sense, right. um, you know, do you get a lot of pushback on that point from even people who are Lutheran or even people who are, you know, Christian and, and are serious. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, like I said, the, the kind of the challenge with this is um, people don't think about it philosophically. They think about it in terms of comfort. So the idea that, um, you know, a 13 year old girl who gets confused about who she is should be able to have hormone treatment, they'll, they'll inter- certainly oppose that. But the idea that you should not take a job that you might want to take. Uh, you know, or that you might not, that you might go a different direction in, in terms of your professional life or, or form relationships that you might not otherwise form. That, that to people just seems like such an odd thing. And I, I think in a lot of ways, because the, it's a very American notion, you know, the, the kind of very much baked into the American spirit is people come here so that they can be whatever it is that they want to be so that they're unhindered in their in their ability to start businesses and and conquer new lands and and discover new ideas. So there's there's obviously a lot that's good about that. 
Um, but yeah, there, there's. I I certainly think that the Christian world could stand to do a lot of reevaluating of this kind of baseline assumption uh, that uh, that being your authentic self is uh, is true. I mean, you see this a lot when Christians will talk about worship. They'll talk about different styles of worship. You know, whether they uh, whether they go to a church that has what we would typically call a higher liturgy, so what people might typically associate with candles, investments, and chanting and stuff like that versus what you kind of see in the stereotypical evangelical model of more rock concert thing. And people will often talk about that in terms of, well, I go to this because that this I connect with this better in my own way, as opposed to kind of the deeper question of, well, what's actually being said there? And is, it, is your connection based on the actual word of God and actual scripture telling you the story of salvation, or is it, or are you just chasing a kind of emotional reaction to something? And yeah, I think there's there's a lot in the Christian world that's still just kind of rooted in these uh, in these assumptions about how the authentic self. I mean, churches talk about this all the time about having authentic worship. Uh, you know, is is the uh, that's sort of the appeal, which you're never really doing if you have to tell people it's it's authentic. Uh, that's usually a good sign that uh, that you're not meeting the mark for, for yourself there. But yeah, that that people are chasing after a sense of authenticity rather than faithful service. Uh, reflects a having um, having ingested the, this kind of mindset very deeply into our culture. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've recently come around to the idea, um, as much as I love this country, that uh, America, the man, the the country that put a man on the moon, and America that wants to believe a sex binary doesn't exist, um, have have more in common with each other, uh, perhaps right. than than a lot of people on the right would would like to admit. Um, which again is is not to say that there aren't enormous upsides to this kind of, the thing is that America has done an, an extraordinary number of things that were declared impossible. Um, right. And, and at some point it becomes part of the, the culture that, um, that America can do the impossible. And sometimes the impossible actually is impossible or it's, it's wrong in some other way. But um, you know, a lot of what you're saying sounds to, to flip to the, the sort of Freudian mode here for a moment. A lot of this sounds like repression, and repression yeah, is yeah. the ultimate evil alongside right, judgment right. Um, in, in modern society. If, if you repress your authentic desires, right, um, is, is this any way to live? Uh, are, are we just, um, is it come out? Because the implication is always one, either if you're repressing your authentic self or your authentic desires, then one, you're going to be living a kind of half existence. And two, right. that it's going to come out somewhere else, right? You're going to, you know, explode in rage over small things because you're repressing yourself. Yeah, you see that quite a bit. I was tweeting about this a little bit ago. Um, and I, uh, where, you know, as a, as a Christian who opposes gay marriage, as someone who, who holds to the belief that, uh, that homosexual activity is sinful, one of the things I've often discussed with people when we've had these conversations is people will often say to me, well, would you rather that they live a lie? which is a sort of a weird thing to say in a lot of ways. And, and it's sort of odd to, because, because the way it's typically uh, framed is this kind of strange either-or choice where either a gay man marries a woman that he's not attracted to and lives the lie and just you know kind of puts on the veil uh, and, and secretly is, is agonizing and die, or he lives the kind of life that uh, whatever the AIDS and HIV medicine commercials are, are encouraging you to lead. 
And uh, now I, I, of course, reject the idea that, that those are your two choices. But what's so odd to me is when people have made that argument is, is I'm sitting here going, well, look, if, if your only options are marry a lady that you're not attracted to or monkeypox orgies, um, of course you should do the first one. You'll be much happier if you do. It will not, it will not make you happy to live a life devoted towards uh, pursuing unnatural passions. So, and this, again, the strange thing is that everyone kind of agrees with that up to a certain point, right? So if, if, you, if you have the desire to murder people, everyone would say, well, you should repress that. You should not act that. And no one would think that you're somehow violating this sacred uh, charge to be true to yourself if you're not doing that. So now, obviously, people can disagree on, on whether or not certain sexual activity is where the line should be for repressing your desires. But it, 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 there is a strange thing that, that does seem to be very prominent in our culture that uh, the idea that you would, especially with regard to sexuality, any kind of sexual behavior, that the idea that you would repress yourself is somehow unhealthy as opposed to uh, that's how we make civilization work, is that the world is much better uh, when, when men repress their desire to commit adultery. The world is much better when women do likewise. Uh, the world is much better when people repress the desires that don't build a functional, healthy world uh, and serve the desires that make men uh, more domesticated and honorable, that make women safer and make children uh, happier and, and uh, better educated and, and a whole host of things. So it, it does, like I said, it's, it's strange that people will always draw the line of where you shouldn't follow their passions only at the point where it makes them uncomfortable for people to follow those passions. But very rarely do folks acknowledge that you might want to actually draw that line somewhere a bit earlier. Uh, and, that, and that we ought to maybe be question, questioning the idea of, of whether or not man's highest aim is to, uh, is to pursue his, his inner desires. What, what do you make of the, the argument that I think was most popularized by Camille Paglia, right, which is not only that boundaries and repression, uh, to, to use that word, um, not only do they make civilization possible, right, um, they also make a lot of things like art and, and eroticism possible. That, that in fact, right. without, without uh, some kind of boundary to transgress, um, in, in your words, to draw the line a little bit earlier, in fact, right. and, and that seems to be very much where we're at, like just as an observer here um, of, of the culture around us, it seems like, I mean, a lot of what our culture produces lacks any kind of genuine desire or eroticism. I mean, just go to like, you know, if, if you look at any um, of those interviews with people with bizarre like fetishes or conventions or whatever, a lot of them are or polyamory or whatever, a lot of it. They, they don't seem actually to be very like <laughs> they, they don't seem actually not only to be happy or, or like morally upright or ordered or whatever, but they they also seem to be sort of chasing something in the right. same way that a drug addict is chasing the first hit. Yeah, you know, I think no, I think there's something very, uh, very accurate about that, mm -hmm. that there's um, that when people repress their desires, there there is some sort of societal line that you recognize that you can't. Cross. And then when you take away all those boundaries, 
Um, not, I mean, not only do you lose stability, but you do lose uh, kind of the beauty of human expression. Uh, I think, I mean, you see this, I don't listen, listen to a ton of new music. Uh, I haven't since I had kids, which is a common thing that happens to people. So I don't really know what's current and what's not. But I do remember a number of years ago hearing, uh, I think it was a new Chris Brown song and listening to about 20 seconds of it. And it was just, it was like a, someone's pornography search had just been set to music. And, you know, and I grew up in the, I grew up in the era of gangster rap. So it's, it's not as though, um, I, I'm, I am uh, unexposed to, uh, to parental advisory type of music, but there, even, you know, if you're dealing with, with musicians back in the day who were writing about things that I would not write about, uh, re recording music that my parents wouldn't have wanted me to listen to, there was still sort of the cleverness of it and the cleverness of double entendres. And, uh, and as you see those barriers eroded, there's just, you lose the actual artistic ability to, to express yourself. So I think that aspect of things is, is absolutely true. Uh, and I think too you're you're seeing um, a real destruction of this in uh, especially in, in relationships and young people dating. I've noticed this uh, strange thing. I'm going to rant about something if that's okay. Uh, how so my son, my oldest son's in high school, and nowadays in high school, all of the girls get what they call a what's called a promposal, which is where some guy is supposed to make a big show of of and display of his affection for the girl in a public way typically that can be put up on social media in how he asks her to prom and this annoys me to no end because girls you get a proposal you already had a thing you already get a whole big thing where you get to be the center of attention and then you get the wedding after that where you get to be the center of attention like you don't get 10 million things uh, you don't get a, they do, the, they do it for prom, they do it for homecoming. I'm sure in the next couple of years, they'll do it for the Christmas dance, you know. What, what, and, what about Sadie Hawkins? Do the girls right, have to? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, no. Yeah, no, so, yeah, apparently girls uh, will do that as well. The girls will make the signs as well for that. But I, but my, I think what's actually happening with this uh, rise of promposal, other than it's just part of the social media narcissism problem and that everyone wants to live online and that you see someone else getting a thing and then you want the thing too. But I, I actually think part, part of the reason for this is because the way people have relationships now, uh, I just think deep in the back of these girls' minds, they know there's not going to actually be any romance when a guy asks you to marry him. You'll, you'll have been living with them for two or three years. Uh, your bank accounts are joined together. Your bodies are joined together. Uh, you very well may have a kid or two together, uh, de you know, depending on your circumstances. And you've talked about it 10 million times. Uh, and so when he asks, you may be slightly surprised at the context in which she asked, but it's not like you were with someone that you didn't know wanted to marry you. And I think with the promposal thing, it's part of this is because all of these sort of social judgments against premarital cohabitation have have been erased. Uh, that the only way a girl can actually get something that feels pure and innocent is to is to go all the way back to high school uh, into into this some kind of proposal type of thing where you legitimately did didn't know a guy was going to do this uh, and and you you know you didn't know his interest in you and that's kind of the only way 
uh, that you can get there. And I, I think that this yeah, building a culture where there's never supposed to be any judgment, where we're eroding kind of boundaries, uh, is you, the end result is you get people trying to find that actual sense of kind of like sweetness and, and innocence, and they can't find it anywhere. So they have to go back into and pretend like they're getting engaged when they're 16 years old. That's interesting. Um, you know, we've been talking about these these questions in terms of like the self and authenticity and all this, and it strikes me um, that even this conversation that we're having is we're kind of unable to have it without therapeutic language, right? Mm. Um, the the sort of psychological language that per- pervades everything. I mean, do do you think that? therapy psychological language um this this kind of therapeutism if i could say that like with that ism at the end um has been in the same way that you know perhaps these prom promposals are finding um or an answer to like you know not uh having exciting uh, much excitement in in the proposal Mm -hmm. for marriage itself um i mean do you do you think that it's been a replacement for theology um, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where, where do you like? Where where do you compare? Or where do you draw the line um, between this sort of therapeutic understanding of if you understand yourself, if you understand your your authentic self or your authentic desires, how to right. you know live a, a a happier life? Like it, it all seems very internalized and very much in this model of like the the mind or the psyche being like right. almost like a replacement of a soul in the way that we talk about it. Yeah, there, it's a kind of, uh, almost kind of Gnosticism, where the idea is that there's this kind of, uh, you know, this in this pursuit of, uh, I suppose, when, in the Christian realm, what we would call holiness, and in the pop psychology realm is sort of this um, uh, completeness or the sense of being at peace with yourself. That uh, in, the, in the psychological world, the idea is that that comes from unlocking yourself, unlocking some knowledge within yourself that enables you to be true and pure and holy and, and righteous. Whereas in the Christian world, it, that that righteousness exists outside of yourself. So it exists in, in the person of Christ and in the person in the work of Christ, which is given to you. Uh, and then uh, in response to that, God calls you to lead a holy life in service of your neighbor. So I, you know, I think a really good example of of how embedded this is in culture is the way we talk to kids about what jobs they want to have when they grow up. And we ask them, what do you want to do when you grow up or what do you want to be when you grow up? When you want to be especially is is kind of the question. Um, and we all know that, I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing because it's like most people don't end up in jobs that are soul liberating. You know that thing like where you're at a party? And you say to somebody, you go, so what do you do for a living? And he goes, well, and you go, oh, no, this, this is not, this is not going to be good. And he goes, look, I'm a systems analyst for a particle thing. And you're going, that's okay. I know even you didn't want that job. So because it has too many, it has too many words in it. And you found something that you were that worked for you and you found something where you're able to make a living for your family and, and presumably do an honorable job that, that needs to be done and makes the world better. And so as a Christian, you look at that and you go, well, then that's a God-pleasing thing, you know, in, in the same way that a guy who makes shoes uh, or someone who, uh, who writes poetry creates something that's honorable and good. But the idea that the secret to unlife is, is, uh, is unlocking this kind of um, 
sense of peace within yourself by by pursuing the passions that you want to pursue uh really just to me it's just an unfair burden to put on people because what what if should like isn't it more important to find meaning in your family than in your work i certainly think that that should be i find far more meaning in in my family and uh and in my and in my faith than i do in any particular one aspect uh of my of my life as a pastor even though it is a, a very rewarding job um so yeah i think that there is uh and then likewise i think when the strange thing about um say i don't i just feel like we were i feel like we were for in the christian world we were over the target for about five minutes in talking about mental health which was we got to the point where we said hey you know there are people who actually have a real uh, have a real illness in their mind and in the same way that having a broken leg doesn't make you a bad or weak person, having a mind that's not functioning the way that it should doesn't make you a, a weak or a bad person. So, um, so we shouldn't tell people that they have weak faith and, and if, they, if they need help in that sense. But then, so we were there for about five seconds. And then people started to find righteousness in being psychologically broken. And it was almost a kind of a sense of, there's a comedian I heard, I don't, I don't remember his name, but he had a great line about this. He talks about working with someone who starts immediately telling him all of his uh, mental illnesses, all the, guy, all the other the co-workers' mental illnesses. And, he says, and the comedian says, oh, what do, you, uh, what do you want me to do with that? And the guy goes, well, I'm just telling you so you can work around it. Right? So, there's no, uh, so there's no sense of accountability. It's, uh, and, and that retreating into uh, this kind of therapeutic mind turns the world into something where you get to be a victim of your own um, sadness. And I know, I know you and I have talked about this before. Um, another way in which I think we've just really gotten off, far off base with um, the way we view uh, therapy and psychology is there's this weird habit of, of um, turning normal human existence into a psychosis. You know, so, so for example, I've heard people say things like, oh, after my dad died, I really struggled with depression. And you go, no, that's like you had the normal human response to suffering. You didn't, that's, you didn't get sick with depression. You didn't, you know, you didn't get infected with a disease. You had the normal response to that. Uh, and yeah, there's a weird way in which I think psychology... Uh, and and the, the therapeutic view of things really isn't serving people well because it's presenting uh, human suffering as as something to be uh, as, as a foreign and invasive bacteria that needs to be killed rather than a uh, uh, rather than a kind of uh, cross that needs to be carried and a, and a purifying that needs to be endured and also just something that's part of of the human existence. Um, do you think a secular society can endure suffering? Because this is this is not an obvious question to me, right? Um, certainly, I mean, Stoicism, for example, right, uh, is in some sense, uh, at least to the the post Christian world, um, a type of of secular endurance of suffering, um, or at least a pagan endurance of suffering. I mean, but but do you think that that can be? sort of society wide or what what do you think the relationship is between our apparent inability 
uh, to endure suffering or to pathologize the human condition and the fact that we are a rapidly secular secularizing society. Yeah, I, I guess the question is, um, you know, I, I think that the way I kind of view the world is that um, you don't have to be a Christian to draw moral conclusions about things or to have solutions to various problems. And suffering would certainly be one of them. Um, so it's, it's not as though if you don't confess the Trinity, you, you can't make observations, you know, that I've, that I've seen you make where we're very much on the same page of things and, and draw conclusions on things that for me, from my end, are very much coming from, uh, from my Christian worldview. But the, I suppose the question is, what then is the source of your of you drawing that conclusion? What what powers your worldview? And yeah, and I and I certainly have my doubts that um, that a secular world is is going to have anything uh, is going to draw any good conclusions about suffering. Um, I mean, it's it's a complex issue, but. Uh, I, you know, I think, for example, when you look at, say, for, say the euthanasia debate, and you see what's going on in Canada, and I don't think this really has a whole lot to do with with ninety year old people who are suffering from chronic diseases. I think the passion that motivates the pro euthanasia side is is this kind of misplaced catharsis and misplaced empathy, where you look and see someone suffering, and you say, "I don't deserve to have to do that." And I want to have the right to opt out of that if that becomes uh, my lot in life. Kind of in the same way that um, uh, that when people see suffering in, in, in poverty-stricken nations, that they think, so, and they think birth control is always the solution to the problem, that they think having fewer poor people is the way that you solve poverty. It's this sort of notion of, I shouldn't have to have that in my world. And, um, and I don't, yeah, I don't know. I suppose if you're, if you're coming from, I think part of the challenge too, is that the secular world is, is you got to serve somebody and you got to be influenced by somebody. So if Christianity has become in our culture, and I think it has, um, a, a net negative, uh, if it, if the default position of the culture is to see Christianity with disdain, then the question is, well, then what's driving uh, what's driving your moral worldview apart from that? And it, it certainly seems to me, I think you see this a lot in politics, that you know you have all kinds of issues that don't really seem like they ought to be uh, leftist causes in a historical sense. But now it seems that so much of the political left is just the entire policy is just determined by what's going to anger conservative Christians. And um, so it seems to me that in the in the secular culture, the default place that people are coming from is hostility towards the Christian faith, which means that you're gonna you're just gonna kind of naturally tilt that direction uh, with regard to any societal problems uh, that you see. And I think suffering is is certainly one of them where uh, where it's it, it, you know obviously kill those who are suffering is not the proper solution to suffering. But the question is, if if people who aren't explicitly coming at things in the Christian direction, how do they how do they figure out what they believe about these things? How do they respond to these challenges? Uh, and I don't and and uh, it's just it seems to me we're in a place right now. I don't know if we'll necessarily stay there, but it seems to me we're in a place now where um, where so much of the secular world is is really just setting itself up in opposition towards Christianity. 
Um, wh- what about uh, what about wokeness coming from within the house? Um, you know, there's the theory out there that actually places the you know sort of seed of first enlightenment liberalism and then draws a, a straight line. I mean, I, I've been pretty open that I'm not really in this camp, but um, to, to put the argument forward to you. Uh, draws a straight line from from your uh, your church's founder Luther all the way mm-hmm. um, displacing temporal or, or displacing actual political authority, right? Um, to make some of these declarative, normative, moral statements um, to where we are today, and then correspondingly, also you know, just as a matter of sort of um, uh, you know, whatever, uh, I don't know what the right, right word for this is, but uh, obser- observations about like sort of the sociological uh, evolution of what we see now as wokeness um, in America. It's hard to note it, not notice that actually like um, a lot of the former wasps, right, the sort of New England Protestant culture in America has largely sort of dropped away the God part and has right. bought into this new set of what seem very much like theological or uh, tenets, right? Um, so, what is the what is in your view the connection between Protestantism, if any, um, uh, and this kind of ideology? And on the flip side, if there isn't a sort of inherent connection between these two, why do we see so many mainline Protestant churches um, become, you know, as as uh, my husband who who's a, a Christian says, he says like when I see the sign out front of a church that says uh, "All are welcome," I know mm-hmm. I'm not. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, right, and then uh, you know so. they don't mean that either, you know. So, uh, so if Tucker Carlson were to hop into that church on Sunday morning, he would be asked uh, not so politely to leave, uh, generally speaking. So, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I think one of the things I would say from a Lutheran perspective is uh, a simple way to understand Lutherans is that we don't re- we will there's a sense in which we see ourselves as Protestants, but not part of the sort of not sort of part of Protestantism. Um, and so, uh, anything that anything that has come out of uh, liberal East Coast Anglican or you know Episcopalianism from a Lutheran perspective is that's not really our issue. Uh, not that's not really caused by us. I mean, I I would say that if you if you, when folks actually read Luther, if you read, for example, Lu, uh, Luther's commentary on the Ten Commandments in his large Catechism, when he talks about the Fourth Commandment in particular. Um, he has uh, he has views. Uh, Luther is kind of sometimes seen as the father of the separation of church and state, which is really not terribly accurate. He ha- um, he has a different view of the relationship between the state uh, and uh, and and the church than the Roman Catholics obviously do. Um, but he's not nearly in the kind of American founding fathers uh, category, and he's, he certainly sees that it, that the state has the responsibility to protect the church. Uh, from error and heresy, but he also recognizes the state's not not always terribly great at that. So, which is really my position on things. I don't. I I am a fan of the First Amendment, but I don't believe in the First Amendment from a theological standpoint. I don't believe you have a God-given right to be a heretic. I just believe that the government has repeatedly throughout history shown itself to be really bad at determining who's a heretic and who's not. And so, the best way the state can serve the church is to just get out of the business of uh, of heresy hunting and of, and of deciding what's pure and, and what isn't. Um, I think in terms of why wokeness has engulfed so much of Protestantism, I think there's a couple different things you have to really look at, one of which is 
is just kind of you have to sort of look at the history of various denominations. So I'm I'm a Lutheran pastor. I'm a, I'm in a church body called the Luther, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, uh, which is the second largest church body calling itself Lutheran in the United States. Uh, we're and uh, we're very much on what people would consider the theologically conservative end of things. So we're uh, from a political standpoint very opposed to abortion, opposed to homosexuality, opposed to transgenderism, kind of all of that stuff. Well, in the you had sort of in various and sundry ways you had uh, modernism and liberalism creeping into churches for quite some time, and once certain church bodies hit kind of a critical mass of having clergy who embraced what I suppose what, we, what was typically called the higher critical method of interpreting the scriptures, so didn't believe that the Bible was divinely inspired, didn't believe it was without error, um, didn't believe things, you know, didn't believe that Moses was a real person, didn't believe uh, in the physical resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth, uh, kind of all of these things. Once you had uh, that theology creeping into those church bodies through kind of the academia of their seminaries, then things were pretty much well over, especially depending on how the church body was structured. My church body is, is quite a bit different in this regard. We're kind of a historical anomaly in that in the 70s we had a big fight over this stuff and uh, the Bible-believing lay people won the day in the end. But I think that ultimately what ends up happening is if you have clergy filling up your church body who don't actually believe this stuff is real and happened, then the question is why are they there? And, and what is their, what, what do they actually see as, as true and honorable and good? And I think for, um, I think for a lot of theological liberalism, there's sort of this sense of going back to something we talked about before of authenticity, is that there's this kind of, the sense of, um, we want to have sort of the air of divine authenticity, but we know we don't really have it theologically speaking. A very weird thing to me is that super liberal church bodies always uh, get very excited about dialoguing with the Roman Catholic Church, right? So like they hate everything that about the Pope. They hate that the Pope is opposed to gay marriage and abortion and birth control and, and a whole host of other uh, issues. And yet they get super excited to sit down and talk with him in a way that they wouldn't dialogue with, you know, my church body or, or, or other church bodies that hold the same positions on those particular issues as the, as the Roman Catholic Church. And I think the simple reason for that is because the Pope gives the air of authenticity. If he's sitting down and talking with you, if his bishops are talking with you, then that really means you're not just pretending and, and playing dress up. And so I, I think for in a lot of churches, what, what happened was you had people who just really had a foreign theology um, who want to play dress up and use that as an opportunity to tell themselves that they're legitimate and they're real. And wokeness offered them, the, uh, it was another great opportunity for them to cast everything that they were doing in, in a religious and honorable and divine light. That this isn't coming from a, a, a political place, that this is really being authentically human. I think that's kind of the, uh, that's sort of how we ended up getting where we are. If you if you reject the idea that that righteousness only comes through the blood of Jesus, that the only way to be um, a, a truly holy person is to be covered by the blood of Christ and faith. If you reject that, which so many of them do, then the question is, well, then how do you obtain righteousness? And I, I think with our culture today, it's, um, we, have a, we have a culture that's hungry, hungry for righteousness, but is also very lazy. So people will try to get it in the, the easiest way that they possibly can 
which is um, defending the marginalized group that nobody else defended. This is kind of the thesis that I had for an article I wrote for The Federalist a number of years ago called uh, Selma Envy. And it's, it's why you see people always trying to link their causes to the, to the civil rights movement, which is they see how, oh, that's a group of people. They are holy. Those people who marched on Selma, you know, especially the white people who were on board with the civil rights movement, you know, 10 years before everybody else was, those are the righteous people and I want to be like them. And they go, what cause can I have? And you go, hey, you can defend the rights of the unborn. And they go, no, 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 no. That would require me to lead uh, a, a very different life sexually than the life I'm living. And that would require too much work. And so it was, okay, well, then here's gay marriage. And you fight for that. Well, then gay marriage gets legalized and you don't get as much righteousness out of defending a cause that more and more people are supporting. So you have to go find something even uh more, uh, something held with more disdain in society. So then we moved on to the transgenderism. Then we moved on to transgender kids. And I'm sure that, you know, uh, pedophilia and uh, polygamous relationships and, and incestuous relationships will be next. It's kind of like in music, you know, when, when if someone's sort of a music hipster and you can't listen to a band anymore once they go mainstream, there, there's kind of that principle to it. Is you only get righteousness by defending the marginalized and so we got to just so we got to find the new group each and every time. And for for people for church leaders who don't actually for people serving in churches who don't actually believe that true righteousness comes from Christ, they're subject to that same uh, cult of the era, which is uh, finding righteousness by by defending the marginalized and then de and then choosing any group to be mar marginalized so that you can extract righteousness from them. Um, well, as a point of egotistical uh, nature that I'd like to make, which is that Selma Envy is actually my my phrase um, that I, I came up with in in the mid two thousands in high school. Oh, okay. Well, sorry. And, I will. I will say. I yeah. didn't. I didn't call. <laughs> I never used the phrase in my article. Uh, I uh, it was Joy, our editor, who used it as the title. So, and yeah, so maybe I think she I picked that up the with Federalist you. List serve, or I think I was talking about it on the Federalist List serve. Anyway, I'm not. I'm not go. mad. I just. I, I like. No, no. That you can have the term. Yeah, I, I want. I want to slap my TM on that because I came up with that you, idea. You know, you can um, take the money. That's fine, and I'll send you half the hate mails I got over it. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. On on a, on a more serious note, um, you know, what do you think about the idea that Christianity elevates by its nature elevates victimhood to some degree? Right. You have you have all the um sort of commands about uh or or predictions that the 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 meek will inherit the world the turn the other cheek um you know christ himself is sort of a perfect victim right. in a way um in in that theology i mean what do you think about sort of critiques from that direction saying that uh, inherently christianity has a hard time uh not falling for a sort of endless series of victims because there is this sort of merciful um impulse built into the the nature of of what it commands yeah no i i don't i don't think i don't think in terms of actual real belief in christianity that's the case because what you have in the death and resurrection of christ is you you have christ is, is certainly a victim in the sense that he is uh crucified without cause and he's without sin um but it is but this is sort of the great beautiful irony of it is that it's by being a victim that he actually becomes the victor. Uh, it, it's by being pierced uh, that he ends up crushing the head of the serpent. 
it's uh, it's by the evil that men pour out upon him that he actually conquers this world and wins salvation for the world. So I don't I don't think it. And likewise, when in the Christian faith, when you talk about you see this, for example, in the apostles when they they rejoice after they're being after they're beaten and driven from the synagogue, they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. There, there's a very important distinction between that. There's a big distinction between rejoicing that you were beaten or persecuted and rejoicing that you were that you were found worthy to be persecuted uh, for the name of Christ. Because in the second cat, in the first category, it's this weird uh, passive uh, righteousness that you acquire by doing nothing. You see this. I'm not going to go on a big rant about Hallmark Christmas movies, but you see this in in Hallmark Christmas movies all the time. That they're under a lot of them are underdog story movies where the lady is like having to defeat the pretty, you know, the fancy, mean fiance that the guy has for some reason when the girl is, she's dating a guy who's, or the guy is dating a, has a fiance who's worse than Hitler. She's the worst human being who's ever lived. And that doesn't make him less attractive <laughs> to, to, the, to the heroine of the story, which is very odd to me. But right, so she, but she doesn't actually, the heroine of the story doesn't actually do anything to defeat uh, the, the, the girl who wears sunglasses and a fancy fur coat. She just waits for her to be mean to her, and then the guy realizes, oh, it was really you all along that I should have been with. Uh, so that's not, in, in, in Christianity, that's really not the way that, that we view righteousness. It's not that you are holy because someone persecuted you. It's you're holy and you're righteous because you belong to Christ, and because you belong to Christ, the world will hate you as it hated him. But you can rejoice in knowing uh, that he is victorious over the world because he's conquered the, he conquered the ruler of this world in his in his death and resurrection. So there's another step in there that I think is is quite different. I, I think obviously there are churches that um, that lean so hard on social justice that they lose that middle step, and that they see any degree of suffering as this somehow must mean that these people are innocent, uh, and they can't draw the distinction between people suffering for their own actions uh, or people uh, people enduring the consequences of their own sin. It doesn't mean you have to be hard-hearted towards people. Um, but, uh, but we don't, you know, so for example, if, we, if you look at someone who is, um, uh, if you look at someone who's gone through quote-unquote gender reassignment surgery, right? So uh, is that person a victim? Well, certainly if they've been misled by people, uh, and certainly, if they have been uh, if they've been told this is the thing that's going to fix you, and of course it it won't. Um, but it does. But there. But the solution to that problem is to point them to the actual solution uh, in Christ, and not to leave them reeling in their status as as a victim. Uh, because and because in in doing so, you you would then end up having to somehow view the thing that made them a victim as. Uh, or that to view that victimhood as righteous, even if it was a kind of self-imposed type of thing. So yeah, I don't, I don't think that uh, I don't think Christianity makes the world weaker. I think obviously false Christianity does. Um, I think bad churches and bad preaching make the world weaker, and they probably make the world a lot weaker than than no preaching does. Uh, so uh, so so poor poor theologians, bad preachers will do more harm to you than you know, an episode of Paw Patrol or whatever it is that uh, people watch these days. That's the only show I know because it's what my four-year-old watches. Uh, so we don't let them watch, well, we don't let them watch the commercials anymore. And if it's been made after 2016, uh, it's right out. 
<laughs> that's it's, it's sort of the method we have for evaluating things. Um, but yeah, so I think I think there's an important uh, there's an important distinction there. Uh, we won't we won't get into your bad views on westerns because that's what my, my parents raised me on older older westerns. But um, I, I want to ask you what you think because a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of your critiques of the sort of liberal Protestant churches um, have been that that they're essentially engaged in a kind of LARP, right? right. Um, and that they're looking for some kind of of true. Uh, connection with the divine or whatever, but what they're actually doing is is playing dress up. And yeah. my, I guess my question is when you have uh, a world where, or at least a country, where um, the, the fastest growing quote-unquote religion or religious denomination is none, um, mm. and uh, you have so many people who are disconnected from uh, a religious tradition, what is the value of the LARP? Because um, I can think of it perhaps in a different context, you know, um, people who who are not believing Christians or members of any faith. And I think, for example, Judaism has a much easier time with this. Other orthopraxic religions that basically say, you know, you, you should practice, you should behave as though these things are true. Um, and perhaps a belief will come to you, perhaps it won't. But uh, what's more important is how, how you behave than than what's in your heart. So what's the the Protestant answer? And then do you think that the kind of trad LARP that I see going on on parts of the right, I mean, I have my, I have really serious doubts about whether sort of, I, I, it doesn't seem obvious to me as an atheist that you can will yourself into any of this, um, into belief in particular, but certainly you can behave in a certain way. Like you can show up for church every uh, every Sunday you can listen to, uh, you know, Pastor Feeney every every Sunday. Um, but what is the value of that behavior? If I understand that you don't think it's it's everything, but is it something? Yeah, I mean, it's I suppose there's kind of two issues there, one of which is the question of civil righteousness. And then the other is the question of divine righteousness. And, you know, so in the in the church, obviously, my primary concern is is divine righteousness, that my job as a pastor is to proclaim uh, the mercy and the salvation of Christ. Uh, and I want people to believe that. And and I certainly believe that when people do believe that, uh, that they will live in a civilly righteous way, they'll live in a way that benefits their neighbors. Um, so so for, from my perspective, uh, I, I certainly would say that uh, the problem when Christians are hypocritical and cruel and unloving is not that they are Christians, but that they're insufficiently Christians in the same way that when I see people talking about toxic masculinity, right? So the, the problem is not with toxic masculinity is not that it's masculine, it's that it's insufficiently masculine. Um, but there is there is obviously the sense in which you say, well, I, I've had some interesting conversations with people in recent years. You know, when I was a younger pastor, you'd oftentimes find people, myself included, who would lament the sort of the state of cultural Christianity. Oh, you have people that are just kind of going through the motions, but they don't really, we don't know that they really believe this stuff. And it's not that that's not a problem, but we are kind of starting to see, well, if your options are cultural Christianity or not that, you would probably you would probably prefer cultural Christianity, because uh, cultural Christianity means uh, guys who look. I would prefer a man not commit adultery uh, out of love for Christ, out of and because he sees the model of Christ's faithfulness to his bride. But I would also prefer that he not commit adultery for literally any reason in a in a civil sense. Uh, you know, in, in the same way that I you know I grew up in Utah uh, when I was uh, pretty young. 
And uh, so my neighbors and my friends were all Mormon. And uh, I obviously have very grave theological differences with Mormons, but they make great neighbors. Uh, they're kind and, and loving and they love kids and uh, they're respectful and they don't want to steal from you and uh, things of that nature, right? So you, um, so there is a sense in which uh, there's a kind of civil righteousness that that is beneficial to society. So now I would, I, I don't, I think my response to people would be, in the end, well, obviously, if you're living, a, if you live outwardly according to the Ten Commandments, your life will be better. If you don't steal from people, if you don't commit adultery, if you don't lie about people, if you're not uh, constantly uh, motivated with greed and anger and hatred and violence, your life will be better. Um, but that won't actually, uh, that won't benefit you in the life to come. Uh, and so I, I would certainly like for you to believe that. Uh, I would certainly like for, like for you to believe in Christ who's behind all of the commandments. Uh, but if we're just going to be neighbors, uh, and if that's the only relationship that we ever have with each other, uh, yes, it would definitely benefit me if you would still live according to those uh, according to those principles. Yeah, I guess that brings us to what the the proper role is of religion in society, right? Or religion in the state. Right. Um, there's a huge, uh, discussion going on now about Christian nationalism uh, on Twitter, among other places. Um, you know, what do you think about the relationship between those two entities and what do you think about the tension between the universality of the Christian claim to truth, I would say, um, and the particularity of nationalism? Like how, how would you rectify those two things? Or do you think they're, they're too much in tension? Yeah. So, um, yeah, these are all really great questions. I, I think that uh, for a lot of Christians have really kind of swallowed whole hog this notion that uh, that the that the Christian faith can only properly be detached from the government. Um, and that I and I simply don't see that in in the scriptures at all. Uh, I don't think the Christian faith has to be. But as I was saying before, so again, so again, like I don't think that you have a God given right uh, to be a Scientologist. That being said, uh, I think we've seen throughout history that the state is not terribly good at uh, at d- distinguishing between true theology and false theology. So I, I definitely believe God has established earthly governments to, to serve and benefit his church. The question is just what's the best system for doing that? Uh, and if we lived in a world where having a good faithful Christian emperor or, or king or whatever it might be better served the church, then I would support that. But that's not at all the world that we live in. This is, to me, why so many of these debates about Christian nationalism are kind of silly, because they're entirely theoretical, right? So I would love to have, I would love for the United States of America to be a Lutheran nation. But we're, we're, so, we're so astoundingly far from that even being a reality that it's like how, it's like me saying I would, I would like for all of my grandchildren to be six foot five and I'm five nine. Like, you know, it's, it's just not really worth getting upset about. It's, it's more about kind of the, um, the philosophical underpinnings of it. Um, so I, I, I certainly believe the state has the responsibility to, uh, to serve Christ's church but as I said before, I also believe that we've just kind of figured out the best way for the state to do that is to stay relatively out of the equation of determining who's a heretic and, and who's not. Uh, likewise, um, I, I want the church to grow by means of, 
of true sincere faith, which means that you can't you can't bully and cajole people into the Christian faith. Uh, that you trust that the Holy Spirit will create faith where and when it pleases Him to do so, uh, and that you and you can't compel people to believe something, and it doesn't serve your church in the long run. One, one of the my favorite things about being a pastor now, it's so much better being a pastor now than it was 50 years ago because the only people I have in my congregation are people who actually want to be there. There's no cultural pressure to be a Christian when you're not really a Christian. Now, that has negative effects on our culture in some ways, but it's great in congregations because I don't have anyone there who who doesn't actually believe this stuff and is there for other reasons and so will cause problems over things you know i mean you have if you talk to older pastors you'll say oh yeah, that guy just came for 30 years and hated me and hated everyone in the congregation and constantly complained about everyone and it's a guy you kind of want to look at and go like do you actually like believe in jesus though because you seem to hate everyone that jesus loves it's kind of weird um so in a lot of ways, that's great, but I, yeah, I think there is kind of the bigger question people are wrestling with is when we, when so many of us kind of developed our view, when, when the, when the general consensus in the American mindset of the view of the separation of church and state was established, it was, it was built on a culture that largely reflected Christian values. That it was lar- you know, a world that largely said, hey, you know, all the stuff about how we should be honorable, decent, hardworking people who don't cheat people, who, uh, who are faithful to their spouses, who, who take care of their children and, and raise them um, to be merciful and forgiving and kind. Uh, our, our secular culture mirrored a lot of those values. But as our secular culture is becoming significantly more hostile to the Christian faith, I think it's just caused people to have this question of, well, does this really work then? Can we actually have a nation if if we're entirely untethered from, uh, if we're entirely disconnected from the engine that's producing the worldview that leads to uh, a righteous society? How how is that going to work? And if it's not going to work, should we should we use the power of the government to impose that on people? I mean, I, I, to give a really good example of this, I, this is my views on on public schools have changed so much in the past few years, in large part because of all of the wokeness that has that has infiltrated there, and especially on things like the gender issue, right? So, all right, so in your average public school, they've they have selected a doctrine of human identity which is that your identity as male or female is determined by your inner gender expression. That's the real you. That's who you are. Well, that's a philosophical assumption based on metaphysical beliefs, not based on data that you can look at under a microscope or anything of that nature. So why do they get public funding for, for their moral presuppositions and their metaphysical presuppositions, and I don't? And so, you know, it's just gotten me to the point where I, where I just go, well, I don't believe that public schools should exist then. If this is the way it's going to work, because if their default religion is antagonism towards Christianity, uh, then I don't, I don't know how that works, and I don't know how you solve the problem beyond, if that's the direction things are going to keep going, I don't know how you solve the problem beyond saying, well, maybe we need to have a bit more, um, we need to be a bit more explicitly Christian of a nation. I don't know how, you know, in the end, I don't know if that, if, if it's worth the trade-off, uh, but I, I certainly can see that, that mindset in people. I'm going to wrap up here with, with a few rapid fire questions from, um, from listeners and from Twitter. Um, 
I wanted to ask, okay, so uh, Jay Richards from the Heritage Foundation wanted to know, and you kind of already answered this question to some extent, but maybe make it more explicit. You know, is there an alternative um, between what he called the naked public square and the confessional public square? In other words, is there a way to import a certain kind of, of um, moral baseline from Christianity without doing what you've referred to repeatedly as like right, determining, right. you know, divining the heretics from, from the righteous? Yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously there is because we did it for a while. I mean, you know, for, for most of our country's history, that's that's been the case with bumps along the way. Um, but I uh, so so it's certainly possible to kind of hold to have a, a sort of tenuous agreement where we say, you know, where the church says, well, we're not going to make anyone go to worship and we're going to we'll let Mormons be Mormons and uh, and Jews be Jews and, and Hindus be Hindus. Um but uh, but we have to we have to have some kind of general moral consensus as a nation, and and we don't have that anymore. And if we don't have that, I guess then the question is: Well, is it possible to lose something that that you once had? Is it possible to go back the other direction without a substantial change to the way your government functions? And uh, and I I mean, on the one hand, I would say in the long term, I would say yes, uh, because uh, because the more people hate God, the fewer children they're having. And the more people love God, the more children that they're having. Uh, and, the, and the people who are pushing uh, st- the sterility of children the most obviously are not having the most kids. So in the long run, I feel confident in, in my side's ability to uh, win the demographic battle. It's just a matter of the short term in between of how much do things fall apart uh, in that way. And I don't know. I wish I did. Um, here's another question. What's the legacy of, of uh, new atheism um, and the seeming collapse, I would add, of, of its appeal? I mean, we had we went through this moment, this like sort of rationalist moment where new atheism was, you know, publishing New York Times bestsellers, like all these atheist authors, the best of whom I think by far is Christopher Hitchens, but, um, you know, also Richard Dawkins and and um, Sam Harris, et cetera. So, you know, what has happened to that sphere? They seem to have much less cultural purchase than they did even 15 years ago. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say there's a kind of, you know, in the, the Old Testament sense of how like, you know, the Babylonian or the Assyrians rise up. Uh, against the people of God, and then uh, the God uses the Babylonians to crush them, but also uses them to judge his own people. And uh, so in, in some ways, you sort of get two groups that are equally enemies of of Christianity um, who end up uh, enemies of each other, or one ends up swallowing up the other. And I think, I really do think wokeness has has just really swallowed up new atheism. And I'm not 100% certain as to why. Part of it is that um, it, it move, wokeness moves so fast, and it's a much more efficient religion than New Atheism, where with New Atheism, you first of all, you had to be a little annoying, and you had to you know, kind of read these long books, and you had to, uh, you know, and, and, you had, and part of it, too, was it wasn't really trying to build anything. It was trying to tear down stuff, which is not as appealing of a movement to people. Wokeness, for all of its faults, is all of its, all of its faults. Uh, that was a great Freudian slip I just had right there. Uh, wokeness, for all of its faults, is aimed at building something, at least, at least ostensibly, right? For building a more equitable and inclusive society. And it offers people, uh, and it just offers people way better sacrifices. Just 
boom, uh, put, pro, put the profile uh, or put the pronouns in your profile picture. Use this, use this trans, this person who's now announced that she's trans, use that person's new name, use that person's new pronouns. Um, here's, you know, here's the new, here's the new jargon that we use for whatever the issue might be. You know, you just see weird things of like, you know, we, we used to call them homeless and now they're unhoused persons and stuff, you know, where there's just this constant, like, here's a new thing. Here's a new thing. Here's a new thing. You get two more righteousness points, three more righteousness points. And, uh, so I think it's just in, in those terms, um, it's much more, uh, it's it's much faster and crisper and more aggressive than new atheism was, and so I think it's just it's more appealing to people in that way, and, it, and it's much more it's uh, you know very well designed towards uh, social media. Um, I, I found out the one way you can go back to being homeless in in New York City, and that's instead of unhoused uh, community members, and that's actually to to uh, defecate on the pride flag instead of the American flag, <laughs> yeah, then, right. then go right, back right, to right. being homeless. Uh, right. In all the headlines, and the, right. in the same but, way that if you are a biological female who uh, shoots up a school filled with uh, Christian children, uh, then they won't refer to you with your male pronouns that you apparently uh, use. So it's okay to acknowledge this person's not really transgender because they did something that doesn't fit uh, that didn't fit didn't fit the narrative. Um, so here's the last one from from Twitter. Uh, what are the virtues most lacking in men, and correspondingly in women, in your view? In, in modern society. Yeah. So uh, I've said this a lot. At some point, you should have me on to spend a whole hour talking about Hallmark Christmas movies because I have a there's a this <laughs> it's is, difficult I, they for are me to do because I haven't really seen any. Uh, well, you got to just watch five <laughs> and then you'll you'll be covered. But uh, they're very illuminating. But uh, I've said this a lot, especially in response to that that the chief problems in our culture are that we are raising our sons to be losers and we're raising our daughters to be narcissists. Uh, and I think that's that's very much it, is that the, the chief problems of what we're not seeing in men is uh, the desire for self-sacrifice, the desire to build, the desire to, um, to lead, uh, but rather it's this kind of sit back and just... Uh, and just accept your loseriness. And uh, I know there are a lot of honest, virtuous men who play video games, but I'm I'm strongly in the anti-video game uh, block. Um, I think that this kind of retreat from society is not a, is not a good thing uh, for men. Um, so uh, for for women, it is um, this uh, this astounding lack of accountability, uh, and so the the desire to be. Um, to be above reproach in every scenario uh, where when you haven't actually earned the right to be uh, so that um, the, and the extreme uh, passive nature of things so that I, I'm the best person in the world uh, just simply by virtue of being who I am and existing and anyone who doesn't see that uh, that's that's their problem uh, so so an unwillingness to uh, I, I think in many ways for women uh, the, the the challenge in our in our culture today is that um, is is learning to see yourself as as someone worthy of of honor rather than as someone who needs to go out and and expect honor from the world. I guess would be how I would put it. All right, and this last question is is for me and maybe ties together a lot of what we've been talking about for the last hour. Um, you know, what has the legacy of rising secularization? Um, in this country or in others, really been um, what? What, in your view, are are the primary fruits of that? Um, I think a lot of it is loneliness 
and despair. And, uh, and I think what we're really seeing now is the uh, trying to turn despair into something righteous, that people who don't have hope are somehow better and holier than, than the sort of self-deluded people who do. You find this weird thing where you, you give people surveys about, you know, how, how good is life now? And everyone thinks the world is so much worse than, than it actually is. Uh, people can't properly comprehend the, the countless blessings they have in front of them that, are, uh, that, that previous generations would have given anything to have. And um, so I think that's a, that's a big part of it is, the, is, is turning despair into a virtue and, uh, and the, lack of, uh, the lack of the ability to find hope is something to aspire to. I think that if I were to summarize anything, it's to summarize it all down into one issue, uh, that I think is, is what it is. Reverend Hans Feeney, uh, he's a, a reverend with the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, uh, the Conservative Synod, I believe. There's another one, right? LCLA, LLC. There's the ELCA, which is the largest ELCA. one. They're kind of, kind of like the Episcopalians. <laughs> um, so. But you can find, I think, a lot of his sermons online, um, as well as his uh, jokes over at Lutheran Satire on YouTube. Um, you can find his columns at The Federalists. Is there anywhere else you want to send people to? Um, did you say my Twitter, Hans, at Hans Feeney? Yes. You can, you can go there. Okay, there we go. So that's about it. I don't do Instagram or kind of all that stuff. I can't, I couldn't figure out what that was. So I gave up immediately. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for spending this hour with us on High Noon. My pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can spend comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.